0: Good morning, and welcome to The Light 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your all cellular phone... Star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll free 877 924 7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi.
1: Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome your questions if you are. Possibly studying a section of God's Word, and you have a question or something you'd like to dialogue with us about, you can pick up the phone and call us locally. Uh, the number here is five two five eighteen fifty nine. As uh, heard in the opening spot, we also have a toll free number that you can reach us at, and that number is eight seven seven W A G P nine eighty. Or if you'd like, and many people do each week, they email us here directly into the studio. And you can do that at TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can remain anonymous. Some people call every week and they just dictate their question, don't even want to go on the air. We're happy to take your question and we'll do our best by God's grace to answer it. Let's go to our first live caller this morning, Rick. All right, indeed, we do have a
0: caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Hi, good morning. How are you doing?
1: Doing well. Thanks for calling today.
2: Good. Thank you all for taking my call. I was uh, reading an article the other day about, uh, uh, I guess, during the tribulation, um, the Antichrist, if you will, um, setting up shop in Israel. um, And it referred to uh, an Islamic leader. Um, And it was was really talking about uh, nuclear weapons coming out of Iraq and what have you. And I just wanted your... uh, uh, biblical opinion
1: on that. Well, it's a, it's a great question. What is kind of interesting is there's a certain segment of Islamic teachers who believe that there is coming an Islamic leader who will control the world will be a one-world leader of sorts. Uh, they really believe that. Uh, you've got guys like the president of Iran that is doing everything in his power to make that happen and for it to come about. Um... They uh, probably more than likely took the idea from Holy Scripture, and when Muhammad wrote the uh, Quran, you know, 600-some years after the Bible was totally completed, uh, probably took this idea of a one-world leader and, you know, translated it into Islam, and as a result, uh, you know, thought along those lines. In either case... Uh, there's many millions and millions of Muslims in the world who look for that. They don't view him as an antichrist so much as, you know, their one world deliverer, their messiah of sorts that will ultimately crush Israel. It could happen, you know, uh, it's, it's potentially could happen. We do know this, which is kind of interesting to think about. My, I mean, my eyes have been wide open, you know, in recent days when you hear uh, about, you know, President Obama calling for a divided Jerusalem and a Palestinian state where Jerusalem is shared. Of course, when he came out with that, he he backtracked a little bit. But most of you who follow Israel know that in September of this year, uh, the United Nations is going to put on the table an official proposal for a Palestinian state and a divided Jerusalem. Um, You know, prophetically, I think that's very significant. Let me read a portion of Scripture from the book of Zechariah. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city." Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountains will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. So we know there's coming a battle because God says it. That will happen at least before the second coming of Christ. The second coming and the rapture, of course, being two distinct events. Uh, the rapture, when God comes for his saints, the second coming, when God comes with his saints. The rapture, when he catches us up in the air. We meet the Lord in the air, the second coming when the Lord Jesus literally, physically, actually comes. And as this text indicates, to the earth and his feet touch the Mount of Olives and his millennial kingdom is then established for a thousand years. Now, whether this battle happens... Uh, before the rapture or during the tribulation, we don't know. But God predicts by the prophet Zechariah, a divided Jerusalem. And it appears that this divided Jerusalem is not going to come through uh, the Israelis acquiescing and saying, okay, we'll split Jerusalem in half and the Palestinians can have, you know, half of it and we'll rule the other half and together we'll have, you know, a unique Palestinian state. If you know Israel and the Israeli politics and the way they think, there's no way under heaven's name that they are going to allow Jerusalem to be divided. They might allow for some kind of truncated uh, Palestinian state, but there's no way that they are going to allow Jerusalem to be divided. And so the Bible predicts that that is going to happen, but it's going to be happened by war, by a war that will take place. So... Um, a lot is happening prophetically. We, we've seen these uh, nations go under one by one, and you know who's, who knows what ultimately is going to happen but God, but we do know that all the nations of the world will ultimately come against Israel. And so I think with Egypt falling prophetically, it was of great significance for the simple reason that uh, they had had a peace treaty with Israel for 30 years. My eyes are very clearly in tune with Syria, because for years I've often thought of uh, this text of scripture in Isaiah 17, the oracle concerning Damascus. Damascus is the uh, capital of Syria. This is Isaiah 17. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city, and it will become a fallen ruin the cities of Aor and so on, and it, 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 it describes it in this chapter of Scripture, and it's using what you call a prophetic past tense like Isaiah 53. This has never happened. There's never been a time in human history where Damascus has become a pile of ruins. But God predicts in this chapter of Scripture it will happen before the second coming of Messiah. And, of course, um, you know, Syria, if you, ha- if you go to Israel today and say, who is your number one enemy of all these Arab nations around you, who is the number one enemy? And they will always tell you the same, Syria. And so they're very concerned with what's happening in Syria. And so there's going to be a battle, no doubt, in in Israel, I'm sure, as this text indicates, will demolish Damascus. So there's a lot happening. Your eyes should be wide open if you're a Christian, because God is setting the stage, I believe, for the return of his Son from heaven. Let's go to our next question. All right, indeed.
0: Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line.
2: Uh, yes, I had a question about if you think God still creates. And I ask that because we've been studying in Hebrews at the end of chapter
0: 3 and then into chapter 4, it talks about entering God's rest. And I believe it talks, of course, about the eternal rest that we know is available to us, but that our earthly rest is also available. And being in Genesis 2-3, where God says that he blessed and sanctified the seventh day. So obviously it was a special day to him, and we know he, he didn't need to rest because
2: he was tired. Right. So... I, I think that he doesn't create anymore, but you could say that he renews things, but that he doesn't really create anymore.
1: So I just wanted your thought. It's a great question. Um, yeah, in in the book of Hebrews, he, he speaks of uh, the believer's rest. And of course, he illustrates by the fact that God created the world in six days and then rested and and he speaks of an ongoing rest that the christian can experience as he as he walks with god but does god still create today well certainly not in the sense that um he what he did in genesis chapters 1 and 2 where god unfolded the creation of the world but i do believe that god in his sovereignty created Uh, certain laws of creation that continue to unfold and continue to happen. So in that sense, he does create. And so uh, the same kind of language is used in Psalm 139, when uh, God makes a baby in the womb and how he weaves the baby together in his mother's womb and so on and so forth. And that's the creative hand of God at work today. But those are Laws. Sometimes people would call them laws of nature, and when that term was used, laws of nature, during the um, time of the Middle Ages in what they called natural law, they were not, you know, saying, well, we worship Mother Nature, you know, that we worship Father God. Um, But they would use those terminologies to refer to either a revelation that God has written into every man's heart. They called that natural law. Guys like Aquinas and others during the time of uh, that time frame in human history. Today, we call it generally uh, general revelation, Uh, that truth that all men know. Uh, that it's innately inherent in a man's conscience because God wrote his law into our consciences. And then they referred to what they called the laws of nature. And by that, they meant that God wrote certain laws into the universe, just as there are spiritual laws that govern the spiritual realm. There are physical laws that govern the physical realm. But I take it that God did that from the time he created the world. So the act of procreation that produces a baby, um, God wrote at the beginning of creation. So there is those laws that still manifest themselves in God's creative finger, but is he still creating new universes and new suns and all that? No, the scripture is very clear. God has created what he has created until he makes a new creation. And so there is a future time of creation that will happen and the book of Revelation speaks of that in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, right after God um, uh, performs what we call the great white throne judgment, where all the unbelievers of all time are brought before Almighty God. John then writes, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And this, of course, is exactly what 2 Peter 3 teaches. Uh, That there is coming a time when God will take this entire planet as we know it and he will consume it with fire. Peter speaks of that. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The day of the Lord is not a reference in Scripture to a 24-hour day, though it mimics a 24-hour day, but to a period of time that is very long, and it begins with the time of the Great Tribulation period, and it goes all the way through the millennial reign of Messiah. Biblically speaking, a day for a Jew to this day, and as in God's Word, begins with sundown. And so a Jew begins his Sabbath at sundown. And uh, it in the morning, the sun comes up and the day ends at sundown the next day. And so it is that Jesus uh, was raised in the third day. He died technically on Friday at 3 p.m. before sundown. That's day one. Day two started from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. That's day two. And then early on the third day he was raised from the dead. And so I say that to say that what we see in a physical day, God manifests in in his ultimate prophetic calendar. It's going to get darker and darker and darker and darker and darker, spiritually speaking. But then a bright light is going to happen when Jesus literally physically returns from heaven at his second coming. And then the millennial day will start of a thousand years where righteousness will rule. And at the end of the millennial reign, the children of tribulation saints that entered into the millennial kingdom and who were procreated during the time of the thousand-year period, and they had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, those that did not receive Christ will instigate, the Bible says, a rebellion against God's Messiah here on the earth, and God will bring that down. Darkness right at the end to a close, and then we'll go into the eternal state. So, the day of the Lord is not a 24 hour day, just like when we use the phrase the day of his youth. We don't mean he was a youth for 24 hours. We're talking about that protracted period of time when someone was a youth. And so, God's word says the day of the Lord will come like a thief, not at which, but in which the heavens will pass away. Uh, He's not saying that at the second coming, the heavens are going to pass away. He's giving the program, and and the Bible's real clear, because at the end of the thousand years, God creates, uh, he destroys the current heavens and earth, and then creates a new heaven and an earth. So God's not done creating forever. But right now he is done creating, and there's a future day when God is going to create, as Peter says in this, this chapter, Second Peter 3, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This heaven, this earth has been tainted by sin. It's been scarred, but God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, sin-free, and um, it's going to be a wonderful place for God's people to be in eternity.
0: 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7978. There we go. Uh, and then you can always email us at tbl at if you have a question on today's Bible line. Uh, another listener would like to know, um, do the angels still observe us when we worship? Is that true or is that folklore?
1: No, that's not folklore at all. That's, uh, that's what the Word of God records. And so, let me take you to a passage of Scripture that teaches that. In First Corinthians 11, uh, the Apostle is uh, describing uh, the, what should take place in worship, and uh, he says, "Be imitators of me, just as I am also. Imita- I also am of Christ." Now, I praise you, he says, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions—that is, the teachings that I delivered to you. So the Corinthians, you know, they had some problems, but they weren't all bad. They they did give marks and manifestations that they were definitely new creatures in Christ, but they were indeed one of the most carnal churches spoken of in all the New Testament. So he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ, uh, every man. Uh, so and let me just comment on that verse for just a second. Christ is the head of every man. The man is ahead of a woman, and God is ahead of Christ. Question, is God and Christ equal? Yes, there are numerous passages throughout the Word of God that speak of the equality of the Father to the Son. And yet, Christ, in his equality to the Father, submits to the Son. Uh, There's the uh, submission of God the Son to God the Father. Uh, same parallel in marriage. Are husband and wife equal in the sight of God? Yes, but they have different roles. The man is the head of the wife. And so then he goes on and he gives, um, instruction about how a man and how a woman should pray and prophesy and how it should take place and, uh, how it should unfold and, Uh, He says, for a man ought not to have his head covered when he prophesies since he's in the image of glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman's sake for him. Therefore, the woman ought to have as a symbol of authority on her head. And then he adds an interesting little phrase, because of the angels, because of the angels. And so angels, observe us they um the angels show respect when they worship god for they cover their faces isaiah says and they share in the public worship of the church this passage teach teaches and we learn that from other passages as well for instance in uh first peter 1 and verse 2 let me just turn over there for just a second first peter chapter 1 um and again, he he makes a, a very clear affirmation that angels are involved in the worship of the church, and the other would be Ephesians 3 and verse 10. So those would be two complementary passages. Um, I'm just trying to turn to them both here. And uh, here in 310, he speaks of uh, the manifestation, manifold wisdom of God that might be made now through the church to who? To rulers and authorities who are in heavenly places. So he he speaks of, again, certain classifications of angels that are organized, that are ranked, and who are involved in looking at the church and observing what the church does. So, you know, you may have had a hundred people in your church last Sunday, but 1 Peter 1 and verse 13 teaches, actually you had a lot more people there than you think because the angels— we're observing. They're watching the people of God worship. And so our congregations are much larger than we think. The angels learn from us. 1 Corinthians 11 teaches, 1 Peter 1.13, and God tells us in Ephesians 3 that they are observing these various ranked angels, the church. So no that 's not some uh, made up mythology that 's something that the Word of God reveals, and you might expect that too, for the simple reason that hebrews one fourteen teaches that angels are ministering servants or ministering spirits sent out by God to serve his people, so they are here to serve us, and they 're serving in ways that we often don 't even know uh, they 're involved in spiritual battle in protecting god 's people. Daniel 10 teaches, and they were certainly here to aid us. And uh, there are guardian angels, so to speak, that God's people have, and only heaven will tell all that they've done for us. But they are serving the people of God, and that's why uh, there is coming a day, according to First Corinthians uh, chapter five, when we will judge angels. Uh, and of course, Paul uses it in the context of the fact: look. Can't you guys solve disputes in the church? Why do you have to sue brothers and go to court and let secular, unsaved people deal with it? Don't you know that you're someday even going to judge angels? And so these angels who serve us, someday we will evaluate their service. And, and I think God will uh, do that for a reason. One, to let us know all that He was doing behind the scenes in the invisible realm. It's a great question. Let's go to our next one.
0: All right. A uh, caller would like to know Does it say anywhere in the Bible that all liars go to hell?
1: Well, um, not exactly, but there is a a passage at the end of the Revelation that uh, mimics that uh, terminology. There's actually two verses where it says, for instance, um, in Revelation 22, that those who love lying are involved in that group of people that ultimately meet the judgment, the eternal wrath of Almighty God. So it's not that people can't lie. There are Christians who have lied and who do lie. Uh, There's an example in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira who lied not just to men, but lied to God. Uh, God the Holy Spirit was convicting them. Don't say that. Don't come up with this uh, made-up story about what you did with your money. And so Peter says, you've not only lied to men, you've lied to God. And were they believers? Will we meet Ananias and Sapphira in heaven? Absolutely, we will. Um, In Revelation, he who overcomes shall inherit these things. Uh, Revelation 21, 7, and I will be his God and he will be my son. And again, uh, the uh, whole idea of perseverance. Uh, When the Reformers spoke of what we call today perseverance of the saints, it was not simply once saved, always saved, as people sometimes summarize that doctrine. If you read the Protestant Reformers, by perseverance of the saints, not only did they mean the eternal security of the Christian, but they argued that if a person is indeed eternally secure, if a person truly has believed in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that they will persevere and that's precisely what 1 John 2.19 teaches, that if they were of us, they would have remained with us, but the fact that they went out indicate that they were really not of us. Uh, so perseverance is a mark of conversion. You're not saved by persevering, but if you are saved, you will persevere. And that's why John says, he who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, And murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And then he qualifies further in the in the next chapter: those who love lying. And again, it's it's something, uh, let me just read that to you. That's in Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside, outside the New Jerusalem, which is, by the way, where people go today when they die. God has created a city which in the end becomes the capital city of a new heaven and a new earth. There's coming a day when this planet, this universe that is stained and fallen by sin, though it still shouts the glory of God, even in its fallen state, it's going to be obliterated. God's going to create new heavens, a new earth, and then the new Jerusalem will literally come down and sit upon the earth, It will become the capital city, and we could call the whole planet, I suppose, heaven. And so, blessed are those who watch their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Uh, when you get to heaven someday, what God wanted Adam to eat in an unfallen state, you will eat in heaven. It's called the tree of life. And I think God uh, records that for us just to let us know how secure we really are. Number one, I think it's enough for God to say he that believes has eternal life. You know, some people think uh, security is found in a place. It's not found in a place. Uh, the angels fell from heaven. Uh, they fell from a holy place. No, it's found in a person. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work upon the cross. And so then he says in the next verse, twenty-two, fifteen of the revelation, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. So dishonesty, deceit, as a way of life, is a mark of lostness, just like immorality as a way of life is a mark of lostness. Can a Christian fall into adultery? Absolutely. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. But will a Christian live in sexual immorality as a way of life? No, because number one, they will meet God under his discipline. And number two, because they have a new nature, they will manifest a different kind of lifestyle. And that's why he says in Galatians 5, uh, through the apostle Paul, the spirit writes, now the deeds of the flesh, that is the sinful nature, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, faction, envy, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, those who live like this, the NIV renders it, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So a Christian could lie, a Christian could be immoral, but as a way of life, someone who practices and loves lying is giving a mark that they've never been regenerated by God the Holy Spirit. Great question, and uh, let's go to our next one.
0: All right, we've got a question about Rick Warren and the way that John Piper has recently come out strongly supporting him and even defending his lack of a stance on a biblical doctrine. Does this strong support by Piper mean that Piper is not a solid teacher as, or as solid as we believed? His support of Warren was calculated and detailed, not simply a passing positive reference of him, but rather a full hour and a half long interview with the purpose of supporting Warren and promoting him. Uh, This person writes they are really struggling with this but wonder if they're making more of it than they ought to. And can you clarify?
1: Well, I think you are making it maybe more than you ought to because um, John Piper, you know, chose to take a, a huge step to interview Rick Warren in terms of his stance on a number of issues. For a lot of people who blog out there, they were disappointed with uh, some of the questions that Piper didn't ask that they would have liked to have been that they would have liked to have asked him, because um, you know, here, here's the thing, and I've I've never changed on this, and I've said this many, 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 many times. Rick Warren is a brother in Christ. I have no, he's not a false teacher. He's not an apostate, and I've been saying that for 20 years. I've never said that Rick Warren is not a born again believer and that he's not a person that doesn't love Christ. What I have differed with personally, as Piper and a number of other Christian leaders in the country, is what he has postulated to the church as to how we should do Sundays. That we should make Sunday worship seeker-sensitive, so to speak, in order to win lost people. Now, God knows that I want to win lost people. One of the things that I bleed for is sharing the gospel. God's gifted me in that way. He's called me to do it. I do it every week. If he'll give me the opportunity and the open door, I will share with as many people that God will give me the opportunity to share the gospel with. But Rick Warren's thoughts was that we should turn Sunday morning uh, inside out, that we should make the service not primarily for the believer, but for the unbeliever. And so, whether it's the music, whether it's um, the the drama sketches, whether it's uh, the the preaching of the word, we should do it with the <laughs> with the unbeliever in mind. Excuse me, and not with the Christian in mind. To me, that is a fundamental sta- mistake and a clear violation of what God has said in His Word. And so. Uh, I believe that when the church is gathered, there is an assumption that lost people will be there. Why will they be there? Because God's people are reaching out to them. 1 Corinthians 14 assumes that if God's people are really truly doing what they are supposed to be doing— that they will have lost people when the church is assembled there in their presence. And that's why he speaks in that chapter about the need not to have tongues that are uninterpreted, but the clear preaching of God's word, because then the unbeliever will fall on his face and worship God, because he'll be convicted through clear teaching of the Holy Scripture. But we don't set the service with the unbeliever in mind. And this is what the seeker-sensitive church has done, and probably the two key promoters have been Rick Warren and Bill Hybels. And what it's done over the course of 20 years is it's weakened the church, and now the uh, seeker-sensitive church has birthed and given birth to the emergent church, and the emergent church is, you know, denying things like the substitutionary atonement of Christ and the doctrine of eternal retribution. So I think what Piper was trying to do now, whether he accomplished it or not, God only knows. Uh, but I think what he was trying to do was to build a bridge between the seeker-sensitive movement. Why would he want to do that? Because that's where most churches in America are today doing. What Piper does, what I do on a Sunday morning, where you open the Bible and you preach it exegetically, is a dinosaur in most people's minds. People don't do that anymore. Um, it's, it, they don't think you should. Um, I believe you should because if God's people are not taught doctrine. In the scriptures, one they develop a distorted view of God, and they become susceptible to spiritual viruses that can enter into the church. the The biggest criticism I think people had with John Piper's interview is that he didn't ask more tough questions because they feel like Rick Warren is a chameleon with whatever group he's with, he can adapt accordingly and give you the answers he he you want to hear. And they felt like he had done that on Piper and felt like. Um, he should have asked some tougher questions. Look, you know, John Piper is a great guy. He's not a false teacher. Uh, he's a good man. Uh, I think he was trying to build a bridge there, not to uh, embrace for a moment Rick Warren's methodology, but to probably try to bring him onto our side—that is God's side, the Bible side of how church should be done. So I don't criticize him for that, and I wouldn't be hard on him. I mean, look at a man's life. Don't don't look at a single. Uh, frame of a man's life or ministry. Look at the whole of his life and ministry uh, before you begin to attack him and criticize him. Let's go to the next question.
0: All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Good morning, Pastor
0: call.
1: Hey, thanks for calling today.
2: Um, I need a little help. Um, I was looking at the word greater, and I was looking at two passages, uh, one where uh, Christ says, my Father is greater than I. You know, I must go back to my Father, for my Father is greater than I. Right. And then, anu- and then another passage where he says, greater works shall ye do. Yes. And I remember you saying that, you know, sometimes Greek words find their meaning within context, and was wondering if you could give me the understanding in, in those two passages, and I'll just hang up and listen.
1: Yeah, great. It's, it's somewhat related to... Um, an earlier passage that we've discussed in terms of the equality of the father from first Corinthians 11, that I briefly commented on yet the father is the head of the son. Um, And so for instance, uh, I'm assuming here you're referencing John 10. You didn't give the reference, but Jesus said, and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Um, and so, yes, there is a sense in which the Father is greater than the Son, not in terms of equality, but in terms of the fact that he assumes within the the triunity of God, headship. And so the Son has submitted to the Father. Now, there are some people who debate theologues over whether that is eternal submission or whether that simply relates to Christ when he took on human flesh and laid aside the exercise of his divine attributes without giving them up. Uh, but there is clearly, and people debate that, but uh, clearly, though, the son, when he was walking here on the planet, assumed a role of submission to Uh, the father in how he operated and functioned. And in that sense, the father being his head, he was greater. Now, the cults use that statement and others like it to argue that um, Jesus is less equal than God. Well, if you're going to be consistent with that argument, then those same cults should teach that women are not equal to men, but they wouldn't want to go there. Because the parallel in 1 Corinthians 11 is identical. Not to mention there are numerous other passages, uh, like a little bit later, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That is, we are equal. We're totally equal in, in, in every respect, in every way, in nature, and in person, and so forth. So there are numerous passages. The, the other one that you uh, reference comes from John 15, and let me just read that. You mentioned this other use of greater, and I'm assuming this is the passage that you're referencing. Again, you didn't give the, the page and chapter, uh, verse and chapter, but he says, "'If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples.'" So one, he's, he's talking about the fact that uh, we as his people, in response to prayer, uh, will see his power manifest through us. And then he goes on to say, greater works you will do. How, how in what sense, think about this for just a second, in what sense do God's people— do greater works. And again, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, so don't, don't let those distract you as he goes on. And he, he argues the fact that we will do greater works than him. Well, I mean, are we going to raise dead people like he did? Are we going to, um, you know, do, you know, other kinds of miracles where blind eyes see and deaf ears are unstopped? I don't think so. So in what sense are we going to do greater works? Well, if you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, the public ministry of Christ, uh, three plus years long, how many people came into the kingdom of God as a result of his three plus year ministry? Well, not a whole lot, um, numerically speaking. What happened on the day of Pentecost? On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. A few days later, when Peter gets up and preaches a second time, uh, 5,000 heads of household are saved. That is men, excluding women and children. They don't even count the women and children. They just try to count the number of households that are represented, the number of families. Uh, some would put that somewhere between twenty and 25,000 people. My point is, is that in a short period of time, The disciples did more than Jesus had done in all his three years. What's the greatest miracle that's really recorded in Scripture? In many ways, it's the miracle of conversion. It's the miracle of salvation. And so the disciples accomplished greater works than than the Lord Jesus did. And that's what he promised, and that was fulfilled. And he said it would happen through the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in their lives. And so the Spirit had not yet been given because Christ had not yet been glorified. So it's not until Pentecost, where the Spirit comes down and dwells the church, that we see this work of the Holy Spirit, just as he promised when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that is so huge that in a matter of days... God's men do more than Jesus had done in three years. That's the greater works. And by the way, it is the same Greek word if you're interested. Greater there means greater identical words. So let's go to our next caller who's waiting.
0: Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Hi, I just had a question or two for you. Um, I was calling about an unborn child, a very young child, of a, an unsaved mother or couple. If that child dies, uh, the child still goes to heaven,
1: correct? I believe so, absolutely. I believe that's what the Scripture teaches, and um, I'm getting ready to do a series uh, beginning the last Wednesday night in August, beginning August the 28th, entitled The Ten Most Commonly Asked Questions About Christianity. And on that uh, series on Christian apologetics, one of the questions we are going to answer uh, two that are close, closely related. One is, what about people who've never heard the plan of salvation? You know, how does God send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom he's never heard? That question, you know, what about the aborigines, so to speak, who's never even heard the name of Jesus, never even seen a Bible? Uh, and then right. the flip side of that question is, what about those who can't believe, maybe severely impaired people, mentally speaking? Uh, a baby that dies at one year old. Uh, I'm this morning already in my office. uh, Shortly after I arrived, I spent 45 minutes with a couple who just lost a baby 16 weeks into gestation. Um, How does God deal with those? Well, God tells us that children are in heaven. There's not a specific verse that you can point to. But there's a number of verses when put together, I believe they very, very clearly teach that. And I'll be giving the hour-long answer in the fall, but let me just give you the short answer. Um, For Jesus to compare the kingdom of God to children, I think is of great significance. It says, for instance, in Matthew 18, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. By the way, on another occasion, he didn't set the child before him, but he held a child in his arms, a smaller child, and he taught the same truth. So this child is able to stand, set before him. On another occasion, he holds a child in his arms, a small child. Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, there's a sense in which children have an innocent faith. They believe in him. If you cause one of these who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Then he goes on and he says, uh, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my father who is in heaven. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So here's the point for Jesus to liken little children to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never wants being the embodiment embodiment of truth. I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus never uses error to teach something that is true. He always uses truth to teach truth. And so for Jesus to liken the kingdom of God to children, that there are angels who habitually watch over little children. For Jesus to liken the kingdom of heaven to children, and for children who die unable to believe, and God alone knows when a child is accountable, there is no age given in the Holy Scripture. Some would say, well, it was at 12. I've heard people say it was at 19. Uh, They argue at 12 because uh, Jesus went into the temple and was able to reason with the Pharisees spiritually. Well, he probably could have done the same at 10. It just so happens that that's the one event they record at the age of 12. And it would be significant that they would record it at that time because he's moving into that time when Jewish young men would become sons of the law. Bar, meaning son of mitzvah, is the Hebrew word for law. Bar mitzvah, is a son of the law. So it's not by accident that he would have been... In the temple of that region, some have said, "Well, nineteen, if twenty and up, if you un- because all those in the wilderness who were twenty and above perished, and only those um, who were underage went into the promised land." I-, I wouldn't draw that conclusion. I think the age of accountability for children differs. For some, it might be eight. For others, it might be eleven. God alone knows. Uh, I I meet sometimes little children. I had a seven-year-old in my office last week. This little girl understood the plan of salvation up one side, down the other. She wasn't just rabbiting back answers that her parents had fed her. She knew. She understood the gospel. She had truly embraced Jesus as her personal Lord and Savior. She was born again. That's not by accident. Uh, She was able to understand and embrace the gospel. So I take it even with children of unbelievers, the same is true. Think about it logically for just a second. What does the revelation reveal to us? It tells us in the end that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be in heaven. Well, you deal with some peoples in the Old Testament where God said they were such wicked, unrighteous people that he totally wiped out that particular tongue or tribe. Yet God says every tribe, tongue, and nation will be in heaven. How is that? Well, I think part of it, I think part of heaven's population will be through miscarried babies, through little children, and aborted babies. We've aborted 50 million of our young here in America. Uh, 400 million worldwide, the other countries of the world following America's leadership, um, a lot of heaven is going to be populated with those little children. So um, anyway, I don't, I don't believe that only the children of believers uh, fall into the category of those uh, who, though unaccountable, will have the opportunity to go into heaven. I don't believe that for a second, and again, I could spend more time on it. I could take you to Jonah and other passages, but come for that Wednesday night series or listen to it when it's posted online beginning this fall. Great question. Let's go to our next one. there? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm still here.
2: Okay. I'm sorry. I was interested in, in the follow-up to my second question. I appreciate you being so thorough about that because that, that begs the question, Uh, if children are so precious to God, uh, could you answer how many children made it on the ark and how many pregnant women made it onto the ark?
1: Well, it appears that none of them were pregnant. Uh, The Bible is very, very clear who it was that entered the ark. There was Noah, Mrs. Noah, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives. Eight persons in all. The Bible is very, very clear, and it comments, comments on it in the New Testament in 1 Peter. So God's very clear. Now, that's not to say that there weren't people saved before the day of the flood came. Uh, For instance, we know that there was a man, the oldest man who ever lived, who died before his father did. Little riddle there. Um, He lived 969 years of age. And his name meant, when he dies, it shall come. God gave him a strange name, but the name in Hebrew means, when he dies, it shall come. In the year he dies, his father, of course, was Enoch, who walked with God, and he was taken up. He never experienced physical death, and he becomes a picture of the rapture of the church, that God's people And Faith are removed, and then a period begins to unfold, the great tribulation then with worldwide judgment. And so you find by typology in Enoch through Noah what God is going to do. Enoch is taken out. He's a picture of the church. You get times that get darker and darker and darker, followed by a world judgment, which God brought through the flood. And then Noah enters into what seemingly is a rejuvenated new earth, just as we will see the earth rejuvenated during the millennial reign of Christ where the wolf will lay down with the lamb. And so forth, so there were people who were saved, but on the day the flood came, there were only eight believers, eight believers who were alive but i 'm sure there were some people who responded to noah 's preaching, but they weren't alive on the day the flood came and so um, only eight persons in all uh, those sons at that point had not had any children. Um, listen to my sermons on Rome, uh, on Genesis ten and eleven and I deal with that in some depth and I think it will be very helpful to you but the questions are getting backed up I appreciate that caller some good questions let's go to our next one
0: thanks for holding good morning you're on the bible line yes yes
1: thanks for calling
2: uh yes sir I appreciate your time actually I was just on the line still from the other caller you got mixed up um,
1: sorry we hit the to wrong the innocent button the
2: children who didn't make it on the ark they got drowned
1: what happened to them they went to heaven
2: but God killed the children, and we just established from your previous answer that God thinks they're innocent. They are innocent. He loved them. He called them to him and said heaven will be like children, yet he drowns them like rats. So how do you, how do you get around that?
1: Well, I don't have any problem getting around it. Let me ask you a question. What about when God told the Jewish people to go in, and he says, I, you know, I, I want you to wipe out every vestige of this particular group of people when you go into the promised land. Now, some people look at that as— Unrighteous God, God is righteous, God is faultless, God is sinless; God never does anything unholy, but God can see sometimes what we don 't see. You see our thoughts are not like god 's thoughts, and god 's ways are not like our ways, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts, and his ways different from ours. The prophet says, and so God sees what happens if a child is raised in a home with parents who are resistant, pagan, hateful, idolatrous towards Almighty God. And he sees the fruit of that. And so God, in his mercy, obliterated certain people from the face of the earth because they were just going to continue to propagate a race of people. I mean, you you deal with the Canaanites who took their babies and put them in the fire in worship of the false god Malek and they literally sacrificed their newborn babies in their false pagan worship. God was saving many of these children from such immense harm because of the evil and the wickedness of the people. Anyway, let's go to our next question.
0: Sorry about the confusion. Thanks for holding. You're on the line now. Yes,
2: Dr. Brogy, I've begun reading about the time of the millennial reign yes Millennial kingdom and it appears from my reading that we will return to animal sacrifice am i reading that correctly
1: you are reading it correctly because there's a number of temples that are recorded in holy scripture there's the first temple what we would call the solomonic temple david wanted to build it but since he was a man of bloodshed god said i'm going to build it through solomon now david was involved in terms of supplies money and so forth but solomon built it The Solomonic temple, of course, was destroyed during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And so they come back through, you know, men like Ezra and Nehemiah and so forth. And they build a second temple, Uh, the second temple. Some would call it later on a third temple because the Herodian temple takes the one that was built in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah and totally refurbishes it and makes it into a magnificent place, unlike the one that they initially built when they came back after 70 years of captivity. So some would make that a third temple. Uh, Usually I like to call it the second temple because it's still the same temple and it never once closed, never once stopped in terms of the daily sacrifices. Then, as recorded in Matthew 24, just as Jesus predicted, uh, there would not be one stone standing upon another. In In that second temple, that Herodian temple, Uh, as it was later called in Jesus's day, uh, Zerubbabel first built it, Herod rebuilt it, is destroyed. And so when the Romans come in under Titus Fespucius in 70 AD and they burn the place and the gold of the temple literally melts between the rocks... The greedy Romans literally pried apart, just as the omniscient Son of God knew, every single stone to remove the gold that was filled in that place, and prophecy was literally fulfilled. There's a third temple that is yet to come. It's going to be in place by the time of the Great Tribulation period, at least by the middle of it, because in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy that is highlighted in the Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the Antichrist... The one who makes himself out to be God will go into the temple, defile it. He will commit what Jesus referred to as the abomination of desolation, uh, quoting Daniel 9. And he will make himself out to be God. That temple is ultimately obliterated. And a fourth temple, some would call it the fifth, depending on how you deal with Zerubbabel and Herod. A fourth temple is in place during the time of the millennial reign. And Ezekiel, as I'm sure you're reading, speaks of this. And during that time, they will practice animal sacrifice, not to take away sin because it's very clear in passages like Hebrews 10 that the blood of bulls and goats and animals can never atone for sin. But just like as we remember through the Lord's Supper, People, through a very bloody rite are going to remember during the time of the millennial reign of Christ, of what Messiah did. Why would they do that? Because during the millennial reign, tribulation saints who are not raptured, uh, people who are saved during the tribulation period, will enter their in the millennial reign of Christ in their natural body. They'll have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. They'll, if a man lives only to be 100, he's considered cursed. A man, they'll live protracted ages like during before the flood, nine, eight, 900 years old. And so their children are going to have to make decisions for Christ, just like my children have to make decisions for Christ. My kids are not believers because I'm a believer. They have to make a decision. And so God will use this bloody sacrificial system to remind them of what the living Messiah did. And uh, anyway, we're out of time. It's a great question. I wish we could spend a little more time on it. There are a lot of questions we didn't even get to today, so be patient. We do our best to get to them and uh, maybe on another day. But you can always call in live, and live callers always are giving precedent. And um, Anyway, listen, I hope you have a great day. May you walk with the Lord and please him. God bless you.